Okay. So tonight's talk is about exploring some of the social dimensions of judgments. And as we know, judgments that can cause harm to ourselves and to others. And, um, and these are, can be based on many different factors, such as social norms, habitual patterns, intergenerational wounding, fear of difference, the unknown, and ignorance. And if we, we can reflect back on the news from the last six months to give us even more examples of this. So tonight's topic, there's no easy answers to where we can go when we think about how judgments can cause harm or irreplaceable damage. Dr. King said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. So I'm going to be coming back to this theme of love. Essentially, if you make the commitment to look at your fears or the judgments or those patterns and those habits, you're saying, I want to be well and I want to love myself in a different way than I have before or I never considered it as an option. And you do have choices and there are options. Malcolm Gladwell says, it would be interesting to find out what goes on in that moment when someone looks at you and draws all sorts of conclusions. And we do this all the time. Judgments and the judgmental mind are based on so many factors. And to name a few can give you an idea of how profound suffering is and the need for it to end for our own well-being. And fear is such a huge factor, and it shows up in many ways. And in some ways, it's almost the causation. But if we unpack it, what's, what's the core of that? So you know those umbrellas that are downstairs, the green and black ones, and the huge? So the umbrella, if you want to use it as an example, is the fear. And then you have all those spokes. So when you open it, the, um, the lines of it, well, it's not the lines, but it holds up the umbrella. Each one of those can be a different um, factor in relationship to fear. So we can have fear, which is influenced by societal norms, along with your own personal suffering. So the societal norms add to it. We have the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? Is there some way I can predict so that I'll feel safe? So there could be some, some sadness or covering up so you don't be in touch with how frightening it is to not know. It's like, here's the edge of this, t- this tray, and that's the unknown. So are you willing to go over? And can you trust that it might be okay, even if you don't know what's going to happen? Fear of change. Sometimes we want to hold on to the way it is for now, because that pattern or whatever's going on brings a sense of security. Like if you have to move and you've lived someplace for a very long time, and then you move into a new place, that's an adjustment that takes time. I remember um, the place I lived in, Emeryville. I was there for over 18 years. And then when I moved, I didn't realize how big an impact it had on me till I was just in the, uh, where I'm now, realizing how much I missed it. I missed my own routine. You know how in the dark you could just go right to whatever it is because you know exactly where it is? So I, I, I long for that. I longed for something that I, that I no longer had. And I didn't want it to change. And it changed. And then we have fear based on ignorance, whether it's innocent or not. At some point, as an adult, 
is that the only excuse or reason for for being in the state that you're in? It's like, well, I didn't know. And there is a place to accept, well, I don't know. And at some point that gets old too. Fear based on influenced by crowd behavior. And we've seen that before, that the unstableness of the energy of a crowd can sway you without you even thinking that that might have been a route you wanted to take and you get caught up in it. Fear from messages from family of origins. So we know that our families, for many of us, have caused some harm. I'm not going to sit up here and assume that everyone's family was like that because I actually have some friends where they're embarrassed to say that they had a wonderful childhood. And I'm like, that is so great to hear. But for so many of us, we haven't had that. And so we have to not compensate, but find a way to heal and make what we lost something where we can bring together for our own well-being. And then if we have children, so that the next generation, we don't offer that to them as a way to cope. So the family of origin wounding is huge because it's intergenerational. When I look at how my parents were, and then I realize some of the factors involved outside of them that made the pressure as well. Because I was born in 1954 when, um, I was just going to say road versus Wade. Oh my goodness, <laughs> where did that come from? Um, oh, yes, Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, that was huge, a very important landmark. And so when I think about what was going on around society at that time, it was very, very hard to be a person of color in this country. And then there's the fear of the unfamiliar, which is a little different than the unknown. Because when it's unfamiliar, there's the assumption that you might get used to it. And that can weigh on you too. So when we unpack what is our fear that keeps us locked in, it can be many of these or a combination of these or none of these and something else. But it makes it hard because it's painful learned helplessness as a way to cope. And that can be fear-based as well. And then there's the habitual patterns that we acquire and utilize to help us make sense in the world. And sometimes these habitual patterns no longer serve us, but we don't know what to do with them or how to move through to create something else. We get to create a new story about our lives. And so it is possible to heal from these judgments. Are you willing to do the work? So I'm going to talk a little bit about forgiveness and love and healing judgments and cultivating discernment and compassion practices, because all of these are tools that help us um, dismantle some of the, the suffering that we carry in our life. And there's often a high price to pay for living in a mental and an emotional place of judgment and fear. I think we all know that. It's just painful sometimes. It almost is like you can't even speak because it's just, congrat- what is it, grasp? grab you and hold you and, and just squeeze. And it's like, oh my goodness, is there a way out of this? How can I cope with this differently? So in many ways, judgment and fear can function as self-protective defense mechanisms that keep the conscious mind from discovering truths that the self believes to be painful or unbearable. When we grow up with a story that's not our story. That's what we're told, and that's what we believe. Like in my family, we couldn't talk about what went on in the house. So when you went out, 
everything was supposed to be, you know, look really good, and then you come home to this craziness, and then you weren't supposed to talk about it to anybody. So that's carrying a lot of secrets and carrying a lot of pressure, and some of that's not wasn't even mine. So you're coping with something that has been passed on because this is the way you do it. And considering options of creating something new is not something that's really offered in some of her families. It wasn't in my family. So as I got older, I found other ways to begin to work with those, work with those, um, that pain and that suffering and those longings. So I'm going to give you three examples of the dangers and implications of the social dimensions of judging. And how do we resolve these insidious ways of causing harm and potential irreplaceable damage? Is there a way to heal and how? So I'm talking about the the difficulties with some of the judgments. I'm not talking about when we cultivate discernment, but I'm talking about the deer in the headlight syndrome and, and how that can just derail you over and over again. We know that judgment by a judgment mind by definition simply means a judgmental mind draws conclusions or makes assumptions about people or situations based on stereotypical beliefs and learned behavior or what you have accrued through your family. So there's other factors that influence all of us. It is a biased viewpoint coming from the past training rather than the current facts. And it's a mind that operates on what should be as opposed to what is. And that was a a reference from Kay Hall. So many of you know Toni Morrison's work, and she's an amazing writer. I don't necessarily have, I've not necessarily um, enjoyed all her work, but I've read everything. And it's amazing. And each, you know, it's like, if you like to read, then part of what I, I appreciate is just the language of how she phrases things. And then I would go back and say, wow, that was a great line. And so I would just savor it. Take me forever to read her books. Um, but she came out with The Bluest Eye. And that was the first time she, um, I think she... Was it, the, it was the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993, Nobel Prize in Literature. And this is just a quick synopsis of the story. Part of the reason why she wrote it, and she says, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And so that's what she did. And so this is a, a synopsis of it based on Wik- Wik- Wikipedia. So you know it's going to be glossed over a lot of things. (laughs) It's the story of an 11-year-old Pakola Breedlove, a black girl in America whose love for its blonde, blue-eyed children can devastate all others. Her prayers for her eyes to turn blue so that she will be beautiful, so that people will look at her, so that her world will be different. This is the story of the nightmare at the heart of her yearning and the tragedy of its fulfillment. What it's not saying is that part of the blue eyes was the longing to be white, because then she wouldn't suffer the way she was suffering. And her life was pretty horrible. And I'm not going to do the spoiler alert and tell you what happens, but it was an amazing, amazing book. What happened for me was when I read it, I was, I was almost like, well, I felt ashamed, and I felt like everybody knew, me, knew my story. You know how you think somebody's looking at you and that they know about you, and they've never seen you before in your life, but this is what you got going in your mind. Has anybody ever had that? Okay, so anyway, um, what struck me not was, was not only the content, which was so disturbing for her, was her longing. And the way Tony wrote about that, because she also told my story. I grew up in um, 
Boston, which was pretty segregated for a long time. And I was part of the generation that went, that got bussed out to the suburbs to school. And I happened to be bussed out to Wellesley, which was one of the most wealthiest and whitest suburban uh, city slash town in Massachusetts. So there was no question about the quality of the education, but it was all the other stuff. So I grew up with that longing because I thought, it's got to, something's got to be better than this. It's got to be better than what I was getting at home. It's got to be better than um, what I was seeing around me. So when Tony would describe this young girl's longing, it just broke my heart because I felt like she was talking about me. And I'm grateful that nowadays, hopefully, that uh, young black girls have images that make them proud. But there's still some of that um, internal wounding around skin color, around hair, around accessibility. So I didn't necessarily want blue eyes, but I wanted to be white so I wouldn't have to suffer the way I was suffering. And I thought that it would make my life easier. So when I went to therapy, that helped a lot. And I got to see where that wounding was, what that wounding was about. And um, I did a lot of healing around it. This feels like it would fall off. It's off? All right. <laughs> um, so I come from a large family. And I think that um, we all had different experiences of that growing up because um, of that time and that era. And when I look at my daughter and my grandchildren, my granddaughter, I'm so glad that that's not something that they worry about or think about or concerned about. And my daughter is an educator as well, and she works with a lot of children. And so her thing is always about um, emulating what's good and talking about how precious you are as who you are. But that book threw me for a loop, and I thought, oh my God, I can't read anything else. And uh, Tony's amazing with being able to get to the core, because what she talks about are the nuances and the subtleties that influence it. And so when we look at judgments and we're judging other people or situations, and we move from a place of reactivity that is part of where that, that suffering is coming from, is the reactivity. And the reactivity is the way you respond to it, but the suffering is all the other factors that are subtle and not always that obvious that influence it. And I'll say more about that with the next example. Um, this was something that was on Facebook. And it was from the New York Times opinion section op docs, conversations with my black son. And these were um, adult men, and they were talking with their moms. And they were talking about how hard it is to be a black male in this country. And what one mom said was, it's not about being pulled over while um, it's not about being pulled over. It's about when, because it's going to happen regardless. And um, I have five brothers, and sometimes they would be talking about this kind of stuff, and I didn't realize how insidious it is and just rampant. And uh, it, I appreciated just listening because I was like, all of this is true. It's not my imagination. It's not just in the times, but this is really happening to people all the time. To, to assume that it's going to happen regardless is frightening. And why are you pulled over if everything is in order? Something to think about. And this happened in 1955. Um, some of you might know this. Emmett Till, he was a young African-American 
a young man who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. They hunted him down. And the brutality of the murder and the fact that his killers were acquitted drew attention to the long history of violent persecution of black folks in this country. But that attention was in favor, not in favor. I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. If the way it was written up, it, it was written as if this was the first time it was happening in terms of discovering, oh my God, there's lynching. And so there was a um, part of the article said, the Emmett Till murder trial brought to light the brutality of Jim Crow segregation in the South. And it was part of the early impetus to begin the civil rights movement. But the way it's written, it's as if to say, this is the first time that people are aware of it. And what it is, it's the first time white people are aware of it, very clearly. Because even in the, in the 70s, they were still discriminating, discriminating against black people buying homes. So the, the way the news wrote it, it was as if this is just the first time this is happening. And it's been happening over and over and over again. Let me see what else they said about that. Oh, on September 23rd, the all-white jury deliberated for less than an hour before issuing a verdict of not guilty for the, for the white males who murdered this boy. And then if you think about last year or the year before, and all the, it was almost, almost like every week there was a killing. And some of the circumstances were real bizarre for the reason for why the police made the choices they made. So my question is, what is the difference between now and then? How has it really changed? And some people were outraged around the country by the decision. But that's how it was. And then the woman later on retracted her statement and said he didn't do anything. He didn't look at her, nothing. And the mother of Emmett chose to have the casket open so people could see how horrible he was beaten and to understand this is what happens in this country. And in some ways, I think it's still happening, but not in the sense of blatant lynching you like that, but even in more subtle ways, it still feels like it's lynching. And that's about judgments, and that's about projections and that's about fears, and that's about reactivity. So where's the love? Where's the healing? So this is something this man Dan Pierce says. My request today is simple. Today, tomorrow, next week, Find somebody, anybody, that's different than you. Somebody that has made you feel ill will or even hateful. Somebody whose life decisions have made you uncomfortable. Somebody who practices a different religion than you do. Somebody who has been lost to addiction. Somebody with a criminal past. Somebody who dresses below you. Somebody with disabilities. Somebody who lives an alternative lifestyle. Somebody without a home. Somebody that you, until now, would always avoid, always look down on, and always be disgusted by. Reach your arm out and put it around them. And then tell them they're all right. Tell them they have a friend. Tell them you love them. If you or I want to make a change in this world, that's where we're going to be able to do it. That's where we start. 
every single time. Even when how you think about someone who's different from you or their circumstances, are you thinking about them in a kind manner? One of the things my brother, one of my brothers was talking about was he was walking down the street and uh, two white women walked by were walking down the same street and crossed the street. And it's like, this is how it is. How you not feel like you want to be upset or do something foolish? And God forbid you do. So by taking a mindful and compassionate approach toward our own internal experiences and all of that mental chatter that goes along with it, we are allowing ourselves the opportunity to develop a different relationship with the contents of our mind. You know, the mindless chatter, and when we name what's going on, sometimes it gives a little room to say, okay, planning. And it's not about an attachment. It's just what that's, that, what, that's what your mind is doing at that time. We take the tools we are learning and use them. It is possible to let go of judgment and fear. And you can make the choice. One page. You can make the choice this moment to practice a new way of relating to yourself, others, and the world. And that's, that's freedom. We get to create our own story. We get, we get to create a new beginning, a new middle, and a different kind of ending. And it's work. It's hard work. So I want to talk a little bit now about the importance of forgiveness and love. Because I, I, I don't know how we can heal as a planet if we don't make room for forgiveness. And it's so hard to do when it's around people or situations where you don't want to do it. I think someone talked about that earlier today. And um, it's really true. And you probably have heard this phrase a lot. Uh, the Buddha said, you can search throughout the entire, entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You, yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe deserves your love and affection. And I think that's part of why fear can, can take over us, can take us over and immobilize us. Because it's also very scary to feel love. And what would that be like to be consistent about taking care of oneself? And it makes room for you to open your heart to others. You know how big love is? Love is big. Love can hold anger. Love can even hold hatred. That's what Alice Walker says. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, love is not just the intention to love, but the capacity to reduce suffering in others. Peace and happiness. The practice of love increases our forbearance our capacity to be patient and embrace difficulties and pain. And then I put our own and others. So this practice that we do is a practice of love. It's a practice of experiencing freedom. It's a practice of caring for others when we can. So a little bit about forgiveness. Our ability to forgive allows us to meet suffering. It allows us, when we pass someone who's homeless, and look them in the eye and see them as a human being. Our suffering, as well as the suffering of others, with a kind heart. We cultivate a kind heart for our own healing. And then that can be extended to others when we're ready. Forgiveness is not simple. 
When we have been harmed, hurt, betrayed, abandoned, or abused, forgiveness can often seem to be out of the question. And yet, unless unless we find some way to forgive, we will hold that hatred and fear in our hearts forever. And then it gets manifested in all kinds of different ways so we can defend against it and maybe not even know that that's what we're doing because it's become so familiar. A, a habitual pattern of coping that doesn't surface anymore. And sometimes you can see it in people like they may respond to something so out of context for the situation. And it's like, what is going on here? All I did was look at you. Come on now. And they're like going off. And it's like, okay, one thing I know, this is not about me. And two, what's going on here? And sometimes, and many times, people don't even know that that's what they're doing. Because it's been... It's so ingrained. And I think that's part of why it makes it so hard to change. And you know, when people say things get worse than they, before they get better, I believe that. So then you're fighting, changing the behavior and creating something new. And the old behavior is saying, I'm not, I'm not moving. I'm not leaving. I don't care what you do. I'm not leaving. So then you get to struggle with that and then struggle with, what am I going to replace this with? What am I going to put here? What does loving myself look like just in this moment for just right now? Imagine what the world would be like without forgiveness. I don't want to. Imagine what it would be like if every one of us carried every single hurt, every single resentment, all that anger that comes up when we felt betrayed. If we just kept it in our hearts and never let it go, it would be unbearable. Without forgiveness, we're forced to carry the sufferings of the past into the present and potentially into the future. And that is an example of intergenerational wounding and suffering because the pattern is there and you just keep repeating it. And it may look different with you in this circumstance, but it's the same pattern. And that's what Gina said. Stranger still is that the wounded, branded, unforgetting part of us that eventually makes forgiveness an act of compassion rather than one of simply forgetting. So this is being really courageous, saying this is so important to me, I'm going to do it anyway. To forgive is to assume a larger identity than the person who was first hurt. To mature and bring to fruition an identity that can put its arm not only around the afflicted one within, but also around the memories seared within us by the original blow and through a kind of psychological virtuosity extend our understanding to see who first delivered it. So this is what David White is saying. It's possible, and it's hard work, and it's worth it. And he also says, forgiveness is a skill, a way of preserving clarity, sanity, and generosity in an individual life, a beautiful way of shaping the mind to a future we want for ourselves. More smiling, less worrying, more compassion, less judgment. More blessed, less stressed. More love, less hate. And that's from Roy T. Bennett. So here, here are some of the tools that we've been learning and some of them that we continue to cultivate because it's a practice. And right now it might feel a little bumpy and am I going to ever get this? And how does this work in the rest of my life? So we have compassionate self-care. We have the heart 
practices. We have those phrases. But I think it's more than just the phrase. You go from a thought to an intention. Well, first we start with the view. This is the view. You want to change something. Then you have the thought about it. Then you have the intention. And they could probably go intention and thought. And then you have the action. And you have to work at it. You have to cultivate that muscle that says, I want to be well more than anything else. There is a book by um, Tony Cade Bambara, and uh, when um, Tony Morrison was working at Randall, Randall House, Randall Pub- Publishing Company, she helped edit one of Tony's books. Um, and so this book was ab- about getting well. And one of the char- the character was in the hospital, and she was not dying, but she was fatigued from taking care of everybody and everything, the church, the family, the husband, everything. And she was burnt. And so she would have these dreams, and one of the uh, uh, Roots women came to the hospital. And she said, what do you want? What do you want from all of this? And she said, I want to be well. And she said, you sure you know you want to be well? So we're not talking about the physical aspect of getting well. That, that was a given. But she had to look at all her relationships and the patterns in her life. And did she really want to make these changes and do this? And so the woman said, do you really want to be well? So when I do my um, metaphrases, I think of that and I say, may you be well. I'm thinking about it in that large context and the impact you can have on all the different people in your life, and you probably do. And I don't think sometimes when we're in that reactive place that we get the impact of what we do and that sometimes that can be very damaging. So do you want to be well? Do you want to bring love into your life and experience something different? And then we have the dropping down practice, and you're you're, um, becoming familiar with it. We're all, I think, for me, definitely in baby steps with it. Still, um, what is that word? Working the muscles. To, to be able to use it well. And then we have the forgiveness practice, which is the entryway into all the healing and experiences of freedom. The trans, oh, and then there's the use of cultivating and practicing discernment. Because we have it already, and we may not be aware or um, acknowledge it, But discernment comes from a place of wise choices. And that this is looking at your options from a place, what is the best way to handle this? So that even in the midst of a situation, you can step back and say, how, what is the best way to handle this? That's wisdom. This is so weird, I'm telling you. Okay. Okay, let's see what happens. Yeah. The transformation of a judgmental mind into a discerning mind is a journey from rigidity to flexibility, from bias to unbias, from closed to open from reaction to action, from stress to relaxation, and ultimately from misery to happiness. And that is freedom. Even if it's in the moment. It usually is in the moment, even if it's just for a moment. Can it be done? Yes, absolutely. But how? So it is possible to let go of judgment and fear in your life no matter how deeply ingrained it may have become or how convincing your mind may be in its staunch attachments to false beliefs. When I made the decision to 
stop hiding. My life changed completely, and it was the hardest thing to do. So I would do things like every time something happened and it was hard, I would cut my hair. So now I'm down to no hair. <laughs> so that didn't last too long. And then, uh, <laughs> that was a hot mess. And then there was a time where I would wear turtlenecks and I would pull them up because I didn't want anybody to see me. And I thought if I pulled up the turtleneck, nobody would know what was going on. I came up with some weird things. And so that was a way I was like, okay, this is how I'm going to handle uh this pain or everything like that. So I started going to recovery meetings and had a therapist and um, started practicing and lots of crying, lots of forgiveness, lots of sadness. And, you know, it's still a journey, but I feel now I have a lot more tools and I feel on... No, not on an upswing, but just that I know how to cope a lot better with situations. When judgments arise in the unconscious, try labeling them as just that. You know, it's that naming practice. So that we, there's a way that as we name it, there brings some distance to it and a little room of ease because it's not as strong an attachment. It's probably still an attachment, but not as strong because you can name, oh, planning, oh, uh, seeking, searching, oh, I have to uh, do something that I forgot. And then it's like, oh, let me come back, let me come back, let me come back. Allow yourself to have such thoughts without acting on them impulsively. And that's reactivity. Observe them, accept them in the moment, and begin to make the changes from all that we have learned. Develop new habitual patterns. Create new stories. Forgive, change, and love. Repeat. So by taking a mindful and compassionate approach towards our external experience and all of the mental chatter that goes with it, we are allowing ourselves to develop a different relationship with the contents of our mind. So when we do this, this is just in our own personal life and our own personal schemata. But then we have society and we have all the things that are going on in the world that influence that. We do not live in a vacuum. So everything is interrelated. Um, I read, I was reading some story and for a while I was having a hard time understanding the concept of fracking. I just couldn't get it. I was like, what? So I read this story and it was actually a mystery and it was about taking the land and using it for fracking. It was the best definition I ever got. And then I understood why it's so harmful to everyone, all life. I was like, oh, okay, now I understand. The social dimensions can be around race or class or privilege. You can just run down the list and they're there. And they affect us because they're right here in the middle of it. We're right here in the midst of it. So we can work on ourselves and then what do we want to do? Do you want to just stay with that? Do you want to work with other people? You get to make choices. This is a practice of a lifetime. The Buddha was pretty smart. So as as I said earlier, it is possible to let go of judgment and fear. And you can make the choices in this moment to practice a new way of relating to yourself and others in the world. So I think a lot of us like poetry. 
And here's a poem that I think relates to hope and that with the changing of the judgmental mind, what is possible. Prescription for the delusion, disillusioned. Come new to this day. Remove the grid overcoat of experience. I mean, remove the rigid overcoat of experience. The notion of knowing. The beliefs that cloud your vision. Which is those habitual patterns. The ones that just keep causing harm in the way that they show up. And the harm can be very small, but it's still there. Leave behind the stories of your life. Spit out the sour taste of unmet expectation. Let the stale scent of what-ifs waft back into the swamp of your useless fears. Arrive curious, without the armor of certainty, the plans and planned results of the life you've imagined. Live the life that chooses you, new every breath, every blink of your astonished eyes. Rebecca Del Rio. So what she's saying is what I've been saying. It's possible. Discover, be curious. Know that you make a difference. And how you live your life matters. And if you can work through some of the fear, how wonderful is that? So another aspect of forgiveness is being willing to surrender. Just let it go in the sense of I'm aware that I don't have any control over this and I'm not going to try to have control. I just want some ease in this suffering. And so the forgiveness practice or the prayers are gateways or places to move into that opens up so many possibilities. Forgiveness is transformative. Even if you're not sure you want to go there, then just stick your toe in the water. Just the toe, not the whole foot. Not the other four toes, just one. And, and say, you know, this is what I can do for now. And it's okay. And I always reference grace and mercy in relationship to forgiveness. Because there's something about those entities that's not only humbling but they are inspiring. And if you know you can work through your fear, then you know it's possible someone else can as well. And that there's a way, in terms of the compassion, that you can hold for yourself and for someone else. Because the forgiveness practice is about compassion, the alleviation of suffering for yourself, and potentially suffering for others. Alright, so I think I'm almost done. I just want to leave you with this. As I said in the beginning, there are no easy answers. And what makes this practice so beautiful is that we get this opportunity to do this over and over and over. And be willing to be fierce and say, yeah, I'm afraid. And that courageousness will support you with grace and, and mercy as you will find a way to bring some ease into your own life. In any way that I have been unable to be with and respond skillfully to the pain and suffering of our world, my own pain and that of others 
May I come to accept pain, suffering, confusion, and ignorance be part of the journey, my own journey, and the journey of others. I offer forgiveness for the way that things are and have been as much as is possible in this moment. And if I'm unable to do so now, may I do so in the future. So let's sit for a minute. You don't have to shift, you can just be at ease. you for your kind attention and you, we have walking meditation now and if you're still awake please come back and join us thank you